stories to you. Hello, my name's Gabrielle Jackson, and I'm delighted to be hosting this conversation with Bridget Husway as part of the Newcastle Writers Festival's Stories to You series in 2021. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land in which I live and work, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respect to Elders past, present and emerging. And I really want to welcome any Aboriginal people who are listening to this conversation. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. My guest today is Bridget Husway, a Triple J presenter and author of the new book, How to Endo, a guide to surviving and thriving with endometriosis. Welcome, Bridget. Hey, thanks for Hello, having me. Hello, endo warrior. Yeah, <laughs> I'm excited. So yeah, me too. Maybe we should explain to people what an endo warrior is. Oh, how do we explain this? I mean, we are real baddies who deal with this <laughs> chronic illness. Um, it's just a nice term that I, I think like the, I mean, one of the good things about endo is that there's this amazing community where we all have kind of banded together and lift each other up and we learn from each other. Um, and yeah, an endo warrior is just someone who's been dealing with the ins and outs and the utter chaos and confusion that is endometriosis. Absolutely. I think that you've put it really well there. For people who don't know what endometriosis is, it's a disease in which tissue similar to the lining of the uterus is found outside the uterus. It can cause adhesions, um, which can fuse organs together, scar tissue, chronic pain, sometimes infertility, bladder and bowel problems, headaches, nausea. Um, have I missed any of your symptoms, Bridget? Oh, you've covered, you've covered pretty much all of it. Yeah. Like abdominal pain um, was a big one for me. Mm. I mean, painful periods was my first red flag, no pun intended there, but um, <laughs> it isn't, I think what what's important with the symptoms though, is knowing that the period pain isn't the be all end all. And I mm. think that's, you know, you would be aware that's a common misconception that people might think that they just have to look out for painful periods, but it really is this whole body disease with whole body effects. And it took me uh, a number of years to kind of learn that and realize that I could connect the dots there. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was a real awakening for me too, to find out that all these things that I thought were unrelated but that were health problems were actually related. And that's when I actually became really angry because no one had ever told me that uh, these myriad problems that I had were actually all symptoms of endometriosis. I thought it was just bad period pain for a really long time. And um, is that... Well, before I ask you, is that one of the reasons you wrote your book? Do you want to just give listeners who maybe have not had the chance to read your wonderful book, and I can't recommend it highly enough, um, do you want to just tell us a little bit what it's about? Yeah, of course. So How to Endo is basically the the kind of book that I needed when I was 15 and my period started to become really painful and uncomfortable. It's it's an interesting book in that it's a blend of my personal experience as someone with endometriosis going through that diagnosis journey, navigating life currently, and um, also blending in a bunch of like practical tips and ideas because I felt when I was reading, you know, a lot of books that were purely on endometriosis, there was a bit of a void in terms of having that practical information and, you know, the medical information is really important, um, but it's really hard to consume and digest and actually comprehend because it's a very confusing condition. We're talking about uh, a disease that has 
no established uh, cause or no established cure um, and a lot of misinformation floating around the internet. So I, I wanted to really break it down in an easy, relatable way. And I guess that's probably stemmed from my role as a radio presenter where I'm verbally communicating with people every weeknight. It's very easy for me to talk to someone as if it's just two mates having a conversation. And I really wanted to convey that in the book because I think so many people with endo or who feel that they have endo or, you know, someone who knows someone with endo and they want to wrap their head around it. You, you kind of want to learn from someone who's been through it and who can break it down and maybe make you feel not so intimidated or make the whole thing a daunting experience. So that was the kind of the main motive behind the book was just sharing my experience so people didn't feel alone, but also providing the right information so people felt empowered, I suppose. And in a sense, it's a bit of an extension from my Instagram account, Endogram, um, which is very visual and um, it is all about sharing information and raising awareness. And this has kind of turned into yet yeah, a big extension of that. So people can take this as a guide and give it to their friends and give it to their family and spread the, the right info. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what was your process in writing? Like, where did you start? Because as you said, it is, it is a huge disease, which has a lot of misunderstanding and myths surrounding it. What was your process in terms of getting started? Yeah, it was really tricky because this is my first book and I've always had a really weird relationship with writing. Um, I was really good at English in high school and I was like top of my class, got the the excellence awards in year 12 and whatnot. It was very much my strong point. But the the writing, like I, I just remember doing, you know, the year 12 exams and all the sacks and writing these essays. And I really struggled with articulating my thoughts or just putting it, you know, onto paper because mm. I guess, I mean, I did debating right through year 12, uh, right from year seven to year 12. So I've always been a verbal communicator. Um, so I did find the writing aspect hard. And it's actually funny um, when I think back for uh, even my year 12 exams, there was one topic that we had to cover and we had to write an article um, either in our own voice or we could adapt someone else's voice. And I kind of used, I don't know if I'm saying her name right, it's been so long since I've thought about, um, is it Catherine Devaney, Catherine Devaney, who used to write for The Age, I think? Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. I, I used to write in her style, which was very blunt and yes. just straight up and wasn't particularly formal, but it worked really well for me because it kind of felt like I was writing exactly what was coming out of my mouth. Mm. Um, so I, I just wanted to keep that front of mind when beginning the process of drafting this book and coming up with the ideas, um, because that was really, you know, the main intent to make it a, a casual, easy read and I think in terms of how the book is structured and um, how we kind of split it up I really was just thinking okay if this was the book that I was going to give 15 year old Bridget what does she need to know what can she do and how can other people help so that's kind of how the structuring of it came about just yeah what to know how to deal how to help 
Um, and then I don't know, it all just kind of, it's, it's a weird, it all came out, but at the same time, it all feels like a blur because this was put together during lockdown in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. I went through two lockdowns. Um, I went through surgery, uh, my second excision surgery. So there was a lot of time in my recovery process where I was drafting because I was very much in that endo bubble. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I guess that's, I don't know if that even answers it. Like it's, it's really hard to write a book. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think I said, think I said never again when I finished mine. <laughs> I know. And especially you would know, like I remember in your um, acknowledgements when, when you are writing a book and working full time, it is a lot and um, mm. no one should underestimate. Yeah. How, how big of a task it is. It's very rewarding and I would do it again, but I don't know if I would yeah. do it again whilst having a full time. Whilst job. having a full time job. Exactly. But on the other hand, you know, uh, you know, we both, have these chronic illnesses and I never thought I could do that I never thought in a million years I would be able to write a book and have a full-time job you know just having a full-time job has felt so hard at times so I do feel really proud of myself for having you should. done it <laughs> you should because you're exactly right and you know I know people with endo who can't even have a full-time job because exactly. the pain is so debilitating so we're really lucky and but I think we're both aware that you know because we are lucky in that sense, we've definitely used our platforms and our ability in, in writing and, and communicating to kind of um, help raise awareness. And I know your book has helped so many people. Um, it's been a real eye-opener, like, and of course you've, you're referenced in mine. Um, and it's just so important for people to speak up. And I think it's amazing looking back on, you know, the last few years and how much the conversation and the the narrative has shifted. There's still a long way to go, but mm. there has been some really exciting progress that should be celebrated and acknowledged. Yeah, absolutely. It has, cha it's changed. I mean, the change has been phenomenal to me when I first started writing Pain and Prejudice. Well, I've, when I first started thinking about writing Pain and Prejudice, it was like 2016, 2017. There really didn't feel like there were many books out there on women's health um, and on women's pain in particular. And by the time I kind of got my publisher and started writing, there was like one book and then another book and then right now there's just a flood of books does that make you feel hopeful about the future for for women's health I think so yeah I think it's really empowering to see and I just you know because I constantly think back to me as a teenager and how you know I missed out on all of this we we didn't have any resources like this growing up you know I, I don't even remember like I'm sure periods were covered in our health curriculum but I certainly don't remember it and I definitely know endometriosis wasn't covered and no. it is so you know exciting to see I mean my high school has got my book in the school library which is amazing oh wow yeah I spent so much time in that library with you know debating after school and like that was my main uh, extracurricular activity debating so mm. yeah it's it's really amazing to kind of see how many people uh I guess you know it's, it's really interesting because growing up and I think that was probably a big contributor to the delay in my diagnosis. You know, it took 12 years for me to get my diagnosis. You, you didn't really feel like you could speak up about your pain and have those conversations, but it's kind of just, you know, now looking back, we got to that point where it's just like, 
I'm just going to talk about it even if people aren't listening. Like we have to start discussing about it and, you know, and it does lead us to writing books and having these conversations. So I'm, yeah, definitely hopeful. Again, still think we do have a long way to go. Um, But, I, yeah, if I had all of these books available to me when I was in high school experiencing pain for the first time, I definitely think it wouldn't have taken me 12 years to get answers. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I wonder, Bridget, if you could just read a small section of your book for us, because I think that will lead us on the conversation we're already having. Um, Just that section on page four. Oh, look, that's a beautiful cover. This old thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right, cool. So three years out of high school from there. Yes, please. All righty. Three years out of high school and the pain extended to my abdominal area. I was two weeks into my visual merchandising diploma in Melbourne when I suddenly experienced a sharp stabbing sensation along my belly one afternoon during class. It was such an unfamiliar feeling uh, and at the time I thought it was the result of something I'd eaten. So I sat there squirming in my seat, gripping the edge of the table until I could take no more and I stumbled out of the classroom hunched over. I was taken to the emergency room in an ambulance, asked if I was pregnant and received strong pain relief until I felt better. Nurses and doctors didn't do tests or scans and I didn't know what to ask for. Endometriosis still didn't exist to me, let alone the knowledge that this was a likely symptom. For the following four years, this pain would strike at any given moment, like during a retail shift when I was running the store by myself and I had to wait nearly two hours for my regional manager to come and take over or at dinner in Korkula in Croatia with my friends where I had no choice but to get up and run back to my cabin (laughs) before the food arrived. And I still Mm. mourn that margarita pizza. I remember looking at the photos that my friends sent me when I was kind of crippled, crawled up in my cabin room. Um, Even on one of my first dates with my partner at the time, he genuinely wasn't sure if I was in pain or just making it up to get out of the date, but we paid $40 to ice skate. So I was not faking it and I hate wasting money. So it was the real deal. In 2015, I was referred for an endoscopy. The only conclusion my doctor made from that procedure was the potential risk of high acid levels in my stomach, but nothing definitive. Uh, Whilst this random abdominal pain was plotting its next attack on my body, things were absolutely not improving on the period front. I could sense its impending arrival in the form of extreme cravings for chocolate, followed by a throbbing, nauseating pain, and then a nice blood clot or two sitting in my undies, as if to say, I'm back and I'm bearing gifts. My cycle got shorter and shorter. My period returned every three weeks. Sometimes it was fortnightly. The pain on the first day would just knock me so hard. I'd often have to call in sick to work. And I felt heavy, sluggish pretty darn useless and had no choice but to start scheduling my life around my period. Throughout this time, I sought advice from numerous GPs. Only one took my case seriously enough to provide a referral for a gynecologist, but I was earning peanuts as a travel agent and I simply couldn't afford the consultation fee. It was literally a choice of, you know, paying groceries for the week or having that appointment. So you can Mm -hmm. guess and you can probably understand which one I went for. I think this GP may have been the first professional to mention the word endometriosis, but it was mainly through my friend Hayley that I grasped a rough idea of what this condition entailed. We worked in retail together before I became a travel agent. 
And I remember her having to take days off before receiving her diagnosis, but we never really got too deep into the discussion. And I can't help but think it was due to us, you know, feeling silenced by that menstrual taboo. Bridget, that's just heartbreaking, but also so familiar to me. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the menstrual taboo because, you know, it is wonderful that some books are coming out about periods and women's health and women's bodies and we're talking more about gender diverse people and being inclusive in their experiences as well I think which is a really positive step forward but there is undoubtedly a huge taboo talking about these things why why I don't even know like it's it still baffles me and angers me uh it brings up a lot of emotions to be honest it it does, I just, I just don't know. I just remember, you know, from my experience growing up and I had two uh, sisters who didn't experience the pain that I did. And, mm. you know, I could talk about it with mum and she definitely had this concern and we did go to the doctor and was kind of just told to go on the pill. But mm. it was just not something we could talk about in high school. Um, and even, yeah, like reflecting on my time with uh, Hayley, you know, we were both in our early 20s at that time and still didn't mm. feel like it was something we could talk about. I mean, we don't see, it's only recently that we've been seeing these ads uh, from, you know, pads and tampon companies, uh, but then they've received, you see, the, they've got complaints submitted to their ads about being too graphic. I don't know if you saw not mm. too long ago, there was this tweet that went viral from this man in the UK who um, he subtweeted uh, this this thing. It was like a, a just a clean, unused tampon. Just an image of an unused tampon triggered him and he said that's a bit graphic and it just it went off and everyone was like. Yeah, I saw that. 2021 man like you were <laughs> you are offended by a clean unused tampon a bit of cotton um mm. I I honestly don't have the answer for it like I I just think there's just been so many you know you've covered it in your book so well all of these sexist notions we've gone from you know the default anatomy always being male we've always fallen mm -hmm. behind um, so much, you know, and even, uh, you know, 2013, that study that came out to uh, connect the dots between endometriosis and the attractiveness of women. Like, I just don't know mm. where this comes from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really troubling, isn't it? Because throughout the, the thing that really shocked me was when I just discovered that throughout the, the history of medicine, a lot of assumptions have been made about why women tend to have certain diseases that don't seem to affect men in the same way. And I didn't really realise that they never actually studied female bodies in the way they had studied men and that almost everything we know about human health comes from the study of not only male human bodies but also male animals. And that's probably the reason we don't know much about endometriosis. And it's not just endometriosis, autoimmune conditions and other chronic pain conditions like fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome and migraines. And although there's much more understanding of migraines today, that just blew my mind that there's just been this real lack of curiosity. Yeah, well, it, I can't help but think, is it a 
is it just a, a laziness thing? Because it is, it, it, I think it, it does come down to sexism, you know, right. like it's like the world literally revolves around men and men's health. There was, um, mm. you know, I saw Endo What, which is a fantastic documentary that came yeah, out. Yeah, isn't it brilliant? Mm. Yeah, so good. 2016, I think. Um, yes. They, you know, posted on Instagram just this morning how uh, these, uh, what is it, the uh, men's, you know, issues with getting erect you know that gets five times more funding and investment than uh, something like endometriosis which is a yeah. lot common <laughs> and yeah even even um female sexual pain you know apparently 30 percent of women have pain regularly with vaginal sex and it's still something that like if you go to your gynecologist they might not know what to do you know that there's this great podcast called tight lipped which is about sexual pain and just they have person after person coming on saying oh yeah my gynecologist told me to have a glass of wine that should you know loosen me up a bit like literally saying things like that you can't make this up (laughs) you cannot make this up and I just wonder you know this taboo it seems to me really helps enforce this status quo because I came across a statistic that a a part of the delay in the diagnosis for endometriosis is because women don't report the symptoms, all the symptoms straight away because we live in a world where you don't talk about these things. There's almost shame involved and a lot of there is a genetic component to endometriosis, so a lot of people are told, oh, yeah, I went through that too, that's normal, if their mother also had it but was never diagnosed. And yeah. uh, Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, yeah, and, and I think that's what makes it hard with um, the fact that there has been no real frame of reference. And it's an interesting concept. I mean, I mean we are talking about how women have fallen um, so far behind in terms of medical research. But one thing I didn't want to steer into was um, what I find kind of troubling and you would probably um agree too because your partner works in medicine right he's yeah yeah, my partner's a doctor a doctor Mm. right yeah so one thing is that and for anyone listening it we don't want to make it a gendered thing saying it's you know men's doctors or men don't get it because you know one of the biggest barriers that I faced was the dismissal from female GPs and Mm. it's because we don't have this real right frame of reference and maybe some of them tend to look at their own experience with their periods and they can't uh you know literally have that same experience so they can't empathize and then they kind of downplay your pain as well I think that's a a really big thing to to note there and it's also um you know it does tie into like this menstrual taboo in terms of we've normalized the pain but we haven't normalized the conversation because when Mm. we do talk to other people and sometimes it is when we talk to older women um they will say it's just you know it's just what we all have to put up with you know have a painkiller like this is what we went through but for you know my mum's generation you know endo definitely wasn't a thing that you could just go to the doctor and, and talk about because they were made to feel like it was normal. And, and that's just such yeah. a, it's hugely problematic. You're listening to the Newcastle Writers Festival's Story to You podcast series. And my name's Gabrielle Jackson. I'm speaking with Bridget Husway about her new book, How to Endo, 
a guide to surviving and thriving with endometriosis. I think that's really important, that, that point you just raised. It's not just about all female doctors are good and all male doctors are bad. And I really tried to understand in my book what made doctors and nurses and other health professionals dismiss, dismiss women like this. And, and I came to the conclusion that it is a structural problem. Like I've got to say I had a GP for years who kept telling me, oh, period pain is normal. And I've had two amazing male gynecologists, like just incredibly important um, to my life, really. Uh, my gynecologist, who's now sadly retired, I'm very sorry for all the women with endo out there, but he was the first doctor who ever said to me, tell me all your symptoms, no matter whether you think they've got anything to do with endometriosis or not, just tell me about your life. And he was the first person to tell me that my back and leg and hip pain was not as a result of a skiing accident I had when I was 19, but actually they were really typical symptoms of endometriosis. He was the first doctor to tell me that my bowel problems were really typical symptoms of endometriosis and that fatigue, you know, it was a really common symptom of endometriosis. So, yeah, I think that that's a really good point. And with my book, these doctors really helped me. I mean, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, neither are you. Did you get help in your research from, from doctors? Um, interestingly enough, I didn't really like, I was, I was kind of not scared to reach out to my specialist, but I didn't really want to bother him with, um, I mean, he did actually say, because during our conversations, um, and especially after my surgery, I did tell him I was writing a book and he said, if you need anything, just let me know. But I don't know why I just was like, oh, I don't want to like, you know, burden you with it. But I did talk to a lot of people in terms of the multidisciplinary approach. So mm. I think um, in terms, yeah, if we're talking about the how to deal aspect of my book with endometriosis, um, I think what I knew about excision surgery and I referred to, I actually did speak to a, um, an endo specialist from India who was really lovely and um, referencing the center of a center of endometriosis care in Atlanta, who have also been fantastic and they've just received um, a few copies of the book, which they're really excited about. Yeah, um, they're amazing. Yeah. They helped me with my book too. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. They're just, it's, it's so, um, it's so assuring that there is, a full establishment like that entirely dedicated to endometriosis. And um, they've got a fantastic website full of resources that you can just go through as a patient or just as someone who wants to know more. It's very accessible. Um, and they work tirelessly, like their, their lives revolve around raising awareness and helping people with endometriosis. So in terms of the multidisciplinary approach for endo, because that is you know, crucial. Yeah, um, I did speak, I spoke to my pelvic physio, Ali, um, mm -hmm. who's been fantastic. And uh, I reached out to a sexologist, Chantal Otten, who, who's really fantastic. Chantal's great um, in how she really normalizes the conversations around sex on social media and her, her reach to young people in particular. She's just, I mean, if I had her Instagram when I was going through high school, I would have felt so empowered. Mm -hmm. um, and she works directly with a pelvic physio in-house as well. So it's just, yeah, finding these people who actually really understand endometriosis um, that I just wanted to like, you know, get hold of and ask them um, a whole bunch of questions. You know, a, a lot of the questions in the book have been uh, been from my endogram followers. I During the process of writing, I'd just throw up a, a question on my Instagram story. If you could speak to a sexologist, what would you want to know about sex and endo? And I've flooded re responses. So 
the book has been such a hugely collaborative effort and I'm so mm. grateful that people were so generous to share their insights and um, put questions to me that I could pass on to these experts and just because it really just needed to be something that I I think what I struggled with um, uh, throughout the process, I had a lot of moments of self-doubt and anxiety because you would be the same in the process of writing your book. You, you do go into this bubble and you kind of forget how much you know. Mm. And I, I need to kind of take a step back and, you know, even look back at 2018 when I was diagnosed and how little I knew about endo and just how much my um, knowledge has expanded since that time. Um, but I kept I kind of kept struggling with this idea that I was going to put out this book and the endometriosis community would be like, we already know this, what's next, you know, like, is this what you've been working on? But I think we do tend to get lost in the bubble and forget that not everyone knows this information. And I didn't know this information um, before I even launched Endogram. And it's been really you know, reassuring. I, I literally get messages every day from people who are going into surgery or their parents who are reading the book. There was a 84-year-old grandpa who went into a bookshop and got a copy because his granddaughters had endo and he just wanted to, you know, understand it more. Oh, wow. And yeah, those stories have been so validating for me because yeah, it's just really hard when you do immerse yourself in all this info and you forget that not everyone knows about it. It's like me as a music presenter. I am so across all these new releases that come out every day and I assume that everyone else is doing what I'm doing. Yeah. We're living completely different lives and thinking about other stuff. So I don't know how I got onto that. Oh, yeah, from speaking to my specialist. Just, yeah, so I, I've got a bunch of experts from various fields and how that ties in with endo uh, incorporated into the book but that was really important to make it like a collaborative effort because it had to represent yeah. everything you know mm. and just in terms of writing you know you you break all the taboos you talk about blood clots you talk about sex it's searingly honest did <laughs> you talk about literally blood coming out of me onto the carpet <laughs> like, it's really good really, yeah it's really honest <laughs> Was that hard for you or did you find the process of writing it somehow therapeutic? A bit of both, to be honest. I think, um, yeah, there were definitely some moments where I was like, do I really need to add this? Is it necessary? Mm. But then I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm just going to put it all out there because I know it will make someone feel a bit more comfortable because I know it's, there are other people who are going through what I have gone through and that was so the hard many people. Mm. Yeah. And that was the hard thing at the time, feeling like you couldn't talk about it. But when you do see someone else talk about these things, you do start to form your own conversations and mm. your own dialogue about it. So if it's at the expense of me feeling a little bit cringe about, you know, sharing how much blood came out of <laughs> me during <laughs> high school. Um, but I think I just think it's important to share. And yeah, I don't I just, I don't know. Sometimes I do feel a little bit like, oh, was that too much info? But mostly not. I just, I just think it's important, you know. So. I mean, for, for someone else who, who both suffers in the same way as you and who wrote, wrote a book, but really I feel like I may have held back a bit um, on those things. I felt that's those parts of it made it so relatable. It just makes the book feel like your friend you know that's that's how I felt when I was reading and I was like oh bridge my buddy yeah I'm so glad. And I think back 
exactly what I, I wanted to be. And, you know, there's silly little drawings in there. Like I somehow got a picture, like a drawing of chicken nuggets with arms and legs. <laughs> you know? Like I really did want it to make it that, uh, I don't want to say a fun read, but like I wanted to try and make learning about endo as fun as possible. Because again, when you do learn about this stuff, it can be boring and it can be overwhelming. And mm. that's what was missing for me in, in the market, I suppose, was having a, a really warm voice and just being able to feel like you're being guided through. And also not even coming out being like, I'm, it, this book isn't the be all end all and I'm definitely no medical expert. And there's no one singular way to dealing with endo. Everyone deals mm. with it so differently. And I think that was a really important point to, you know, um, emphasize on was that it's just not a one size fits all thing that you navigate. And, but if we can figure it out together and we can make mistakes along the way and, mm. you know, it's just providing that comfort that I think a lot of people may have needed. Yeah, I, I found that really helpful in your book that you were very clear about. It's such an individual disease and this is what makes it hard for medicine to treat because one treatment will really make a woman better. She can go on with her life and the doctor will never see her again. And for the next person, it won't even make a dent. And then um, another gynaecologist told me, uh, Dr Susan Evans, who's done so much work in this area, told me that sometimes, you know, that they'll get the period pain, the doctor will work on the period pain and they'll get the period pain under control, but then there'll still be the fatigue and the headaches and the nausea and the dizziness and the doctor thinks, oh, God, <laughs> you know, it's really hard. But I think that's because we're not thinking of it as a whole of body disease, but also because everyone experiences it differently and yeah. we don't know enough about it to have a one-size-fits-all uh, cure let alone a uh, treatment let alone cure yeah and I think it's important to the the expectation that doctors may feel as if that they should be across absolutely mm. everything and it, it's impossible because there are so many different symptoms and so many different medical conditions and we can't expect every single doctor to be absolutely across everything but what we should be able to expect is for them to kind of own up to that and say you know hey I can help you in terms of yeah maybe your period pain but this this whole issue that you're having with with, um, painful sex you know I can't personally uh, prescribe you a treatment plan but I know a great pelvic physio let me give you their details like I think that's what I would love medical professionals to kind of take out of all the conversations with um, you know endometriosis and the community speaking up is that we're not expecting them to be um, yeah full experts on absolutely everything but we just need them to be honest when they know they can't help and pass us on to someone who can help because I would walk out of a consultation feeling like I have so much more respect for them and I would say like I would pass them on to people because I'd be like you know they may not know something but they'll be able to pass you on to someone yeah. who can actually help and I think that's a real you know, big problem that still exists in the medical field is, and I don't know if it's an, uh, an ego thing that they can't, you know, maybe feel like it's uh, admitting like they're not mm -hmm. good or whatever, but yeah. I think that is what it makes a doctor good is the ability to, you know, say, I can't help you, but I do know other people because yeah, I know that I can't help you there, but it's, then they should make the effort to find people who can, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, I spoke to a um, researcher, Kate Young, from she's now at Queensland QUT, and she said 
it's a real problem with the way medical students are trained. They're trained that to that they'll have all the answers and that they can cure people. And then when they get people, especially young doctors, I think, you know, um, as you as you go through your medical career, you realise that there's a lot of grey area in medicine, but it's really hard for young doctors to say, I don't really have a single answer for you, but they really need to be trained to do exactly what you say, to refer on and to say, you know, this may go on for a long time. There may not be a cure, but there's lots of things you can do to make life a bit better for yourself. Yeah, I remember after my first surgery in 2018, I went and saw just um, a bulk billing doctor down the road um, because I wanted to get a referral for pelvic physio. And she was like, why do you why do you need that? That's got nothing to do with your with your endo. And I was like, <laughs> oh, OK, never mind. But then through my research and then I, you know, discovered like how relevant it is and just I think that's a problem. Like when you when you go in specifically asking for something um, and kind of being dismissed when it turns out that you're right. Like Yeah. You know more about your disease than the doctor you just saw. Yeah, it's so bad. It's so bad. But, you know, that's what leads us to, you know, writing our books and, and talking about it. And sadly, it has been that case where social media has uh, taught me more about my condition than, you know, any consultation with a medical professional. But it's still something that you need to be mindful of, of when navigating social media because there's still a lot of misinformation yeah, out yeah. there. So it's it's still a lot of people telling us we can be cured by having a gluten-free diet. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that, that cute? That's my favorite cure. <laughs> <laughs> um I wonder if you were inspired by any writers when you started thinking about this book. Oh boy, I think there was probably quite a few. Um, the first that spring to mind is Iris Orbach and um, Amy Stein, who put together Beating Endo. That was mm. really the first, you know, formative read that I've had about endometriosis. Their book is um, quite extensive and there's still some bits in there that I kind of can't get my head around because it's very medical yeah. oriented and, and very articulate. Um, but it's a fantastic fantastic resource to have and I would recommend that to anyone and I think that was really inspiring for me because I you know I read that book and I was like this is this is huge but how could I make something like this just a bit more relatable from you know a patient perspective and break it down simplify it even more because it is it's a big read um, and you really need to be quite attentive and switched on when reading it mm -hmm. um, but they were definitely a huge source of inspiration and like I'm so grateful for the work that they do you know these are two medical professionals based in the states and I remember attending a, a, a free online webinar that Amy was part of to talk about uh, pelvic therapy and it was like 8 a.m for Australia and it was like you know nighttime in LA but I was like on my couch in my dressing gown so excited and I almost was like kind of fangirling so I was yeah. like oh my god it's Amy Stein the pelvic physio who really understands endo um so they would be the first I mean you definitely and like all the work that you've put into um, pain and prejudice with the research and kind of getting down to the bottom as to you know why we have fallen so far behind in the medical system I think that's so important and you know even you sharing your experience about um the bit that I included about you know being hit by a bloody train like comparing <laughs> that pain to endometriosis I think was really important and a real eye-opener for people and that was something that I definitely wanted to um 
you know, highlight in, in my book because I think that just will really help people who don't have endo understand yeah. mm. the pain that we're talking about. Um, and also I think general writers like Zoe Foster-Blake and even Tanya Hennessy in terms of their tone and their voice because mm-hmm. it's quite conversational and warm and it does feel like you're reading directly from a friend, um, they were definitely big sources of inspiration there because that kind of, yeah, writing style is definitely what I gravitate to and I think, again, as a radio presenter, that works really really well for me because people hear me talk every night and it's hard for me to get super formal you know yeah, <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> I, I just I couldn't I couldn't possibly do a book that didn't feel like it was um not me speaking mm. as, as I would so I wanted to keep it as real as possible so yeah th- those would probably be the the main sources of inspiration there and then um yeah I guess just you know I've, I've read some other books on endo which have been have been great and again love seeing all of these books coming out I think also Lara Parker who's a writer in the states I think she's still at BuzzFeed um she's like real no bullshit um and she put out her book Vagina Problems um which I haven't read yet but I I do love her Twitter rants about endo and um she doesn't hold back and I think she um conveys a lot of frustration that we all feel when people don't take our pain seriously or Mm. they tell us that their cousin's sister's daughter-in-law's best friend had yoga and it cured them, you know. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yoga's the other one. I mean, I love yoga. It does help, but, yeah, it doesn't cure. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Um, You've talked a bit about how social media has really helped inform you. I just wonder um, what do you think literature's role is in bringing about social change? Um, Oh, boy, that's a, a good question. I think... I mean, I think overall, I think people should probably take social media a little bit more seriously Mm. and especially seeing the the impact that it can have on things like endometriosis and awareness for chronic conditions. I I don't know about you, but I actually have not seen any other health condition like endometriosis take off on social media. Like it is a whole new world. It is mm-hmm. it is so powerful and the amount of endometriosis accounts that are out there now are fantastic. Again, it can make it a little bit hard because there's so much information out there and it's just a matter of getting the right info. But mm. I think it's I think it's just something that we should yeah take a bit more seriously and um, see it as a platform for people to communicate really important things. And people don't necessarily have to write a book to get their um, voices heard and get this info conveyed. And I think that's something that social media has has shown, like just not to underestimate the power of it. And I think it's also for the medical world to see as well that we are kind of taking matters into our own hands and um, kind of demanding to be heard. And it's not something that they should just dismiss. I feel like there are still some you know, I actually got a really, like I got a one-star review on my book um, that I, I feel like it was someone that just maybe just doesn't like me. <laughs> they, they, were, they said in the book, you know, all of this information has just been taken from social media when it's actually not true. Like there's whole, you know, referencing at the end and studies and specialists have been uh, quoted and whatnot. But just those kinds of attitudes when I may be on the surface, people may have seen me, you know, how much I talk about it on social media. They don't take it seriously because they don't take social media as a platform and as a media form 
seriously. So I think this relationship between literature and social media is one that people should kind of embrace a bit more moving mm-hmm. forward. And, you know, I, if I, I, I don't know why this pops up, but for me as uh, someone who broadcasts on radio, talking about music and, you know, how radio has been the traditional format for, for, for music, but now you have things like Spotify and whatnot, and even things now like TikTok and TikTok as a platform is so pivotal for discovering music and for actually helping artists break through. And it's mm-hmm. something that people in the radio world should embrace more too. And we should be looking at that as a source of inspiration. We should be looking at TikTok to find upcoming apps and, and stuff like that. It's not something that we should be like, this is silly. We can't take it seriously. It's just a phase or it's just a trend. It's not, this is going to be an ongoing, you know, uh, source of influence um, in the world of music. And I, I think social media is the same in the world of literature as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely <laughs> makes sense to me. And I think we've just about run out of time. So thank you so much for joining us today, Bridget. Thanks for having me. It was so nice to actually like for us to chat too. And I'm so I know. that you, um, you know, endorsed my book and have read it and the work that you've done as well. So it's been awesome that we could finally have a yarn about something that we're both very passionate about. Absolutely. I think we could have gone on for another few hours. Yeah. And maybe with a wine, but it's probably too early. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Is it too early? I mean, it's almost 11. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, it has been absolutely um, fascinating. Thanks again so much, Bridget. Thank you. to you.